Welcome, everybody, to uh, this week's second live edition of the Casual Shooters podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This is our final edition for the week. Uh, tonight, I'm talking with Ben Barry and Kyle Stevens about their run for Area 6 director. This will actually be, last night I said it was less of a classic style debate, but the more I thought about it, no, it's actually a more classic style debate where they answer the question and whoever answered first gets a chance to rebut. So that's how we're going to continue tonight. Hopefully this gives you everything you need to be able to go to the polls a week from now and decide who you're going to vote for. So if you would join me in welcoming... Ben and Kyle to the show. How you doing, gentlemen? How's it going? Doing well. How are you, Excellent. Dave? Excellent. Good, good, good. Glad you guys could make it. You, you don't look too bad for having a somewhat newborn Ben. You look alive. That's good. <laughs> are you feeling alive? That's the real question. And he's quiet. We lost your audio, Ben. <laughs> and we lost... Kyle's everything. <laughs> Everybody's gone. Did I do something? Oh, Lord. All right. How about now? Ah, I got you now. The screen just flashed and now it's working. So, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, he's he, he's a little bit different every day. That's the, the joy of children. You think you get it figured out and then something changes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it'll be like that till they move out. All right. So, gentlemen, we're not like last night. We're not going to do an intro. Um, we'll get right into the questions, which you guys were. I, I forwarded those earlier today so you guys could take a look at them. Topics, really, um, that we'll discuss. But you will have an opportunity at the end for a closing statement to explain, you know, why people should vote for you and, and what you plan on bringing to the organization. Um, audience, go ahead and. Uh, like last night, feel free to comment. If there's something pertinent, I will share it with the two and we can discuss it further. All right, gentlemen, we are going to start. So this first question is um, for you, Ben. So you, you, Kyle will have an opportunity to answer as well. And then Ben, you can rebut. So what major matches have you shot outside of the geographical East Coast in recent years that lead you to believe staff reset? will work in other locations across the country. If staff reset is the preferred way, why are we not seeing it in other parts of the country? And we lost your audio again, Ben. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm, now I hear you. Okay, I guess it just takes a minute when I when I take myself off mute. Uh, it's a little delay. Uh, okay, little, gotcha. Um, no, so I think this is, this is actually really interesting question. And I have a few theories, but honestly, without sitting down and sort of comparing finances of some matches in, in other parts of the country, it's it's hard for me to be 100% sure. Um, I mean, one thing I will say is, so when we talk about staff reset, our rule of thumb, when we're staffing a match around here is that we're, we're looking for an average of four ROs per stage. Now, all four of those ROs need to be relatively physically fit so they can be on their feet resetting basically for every shooter. Uh, you know, if we have a situation where we know someone's physically impaired, we'll, we'll try and either match folks up or swap them out before and after lunch, something like that. Uh, so if you think about a match like the, like the upcoming North Carolina section match, so it's a, uh, it's a nine stage match, which means 
in a typical scenario where you'd have maybe an assigned two assigned ROs, one for the tablet, one for the timer, and a third assigned CRO, you're looking at between two to three staff members per stage. All we do is put a fourth person on the stage and then deputize the ROs to work it. So I don't know that having that, that going from two to three to four people per stage is necessarily what would prevent other matches from doing it. Now, I know not all uh, not all level two matches can get the, the the kind of turnout that we get. So, for example, I was just doing the numbers based on the North Carolina section. We're going to have about 260 paid shooters. Well, not paid shooters, 260 shooters in the main match. That includes some sponsor slots to the main match. But that's that's how many we have. And so we're looking at somewhere between, you know, the difference between 20 to 30 ROs on the stages and 40. So it's really only an additional 10 or 15 ROs in the mix, depending on, you know, how you how you schedule it. Now, that breaks down to typically you'll have four ROs on on an average stage, but you'll have five on the bigger ones and three on the smaller ones. And again, typically the way it works is the you have one person who's who's running the timer, one person running the tablet, and one person dedicated to pacing and resetting. Or if you have four people, then you have a second one. And as soon as the range is cleared, they those two resetters follow the tablet and timer RO around as they score. If one guy's dedicated to steel, he'll run out, set the steel, and paint it. You don't have to wait for the for the the timer RO and the scorekeeper to get there because the steel's either down or it isn't. Um, and then when the the tablet and the timer RO finish, the tablet RO goes up range to get the competitor signature. The timer RO will typically turn around, paste two or three targets towards the end of the stage. They meet in the middle with the the folks that started at the beginning, and uh, the stage is reset. And then you, as soon as you walk up range, the next shooter's on deck, and you you make them ready. So I don't know that the additional staff is is necessarily a, a blocker. I will say, at least around here, we don't invest we don't buy prizes so whatever prizes are on the prize table are just what are sent by sponsors in uh, as as their contribution and so we very rarely have guns to give away the last few years i think ruger has sent a couple of certificates for you know 400 ish guns so you don't come to at least a north carolina section match for the prizes whatever money comes in doesn't go out to stock the prize table it goes out to help the staff and in the the staff package this year, well, it, yeah, this year it's one hundred and fifty dollars for everyone, and then if you live more than fifty miles away, it's one hundred and twenty five dollars on top of that to cover additional gas and, and hotel. So the idea there is that's basically enough. If you split it with another RO, you guys can cover uh, a hotel room for the match, or if you guys want to take that money and pull it with three or four people and get an Airbnb, that's up to you. There's no submitting expense reports or receipts or anything. It's just, hey, if you work, here's your check. Uh, now, the checks are given out at the end of teardown. So if you, for whatever reason, don't show up to the match, you don't get your, you know, you don't get your check if you don't stay to the end, unless, you know, there's there's some kind of discussion with the with the, the, the match director, then then you don't get your check. But that's that's just logistically how it's worked out. So to me, I, I would actually be really curious to talk to some match directors who've run matches in other parts of the country. Um, I know, you know, in our discussions, uh, talking to Kyle, you know, the Nationals already budgets for four people per stage. So in theory, I think we're not that far away from potentially being able to do, a at least in terms of headcount, being able to do a, a staff reset Nationals. Uh, but without having sort of seen more granular details on sort of the, the, the finances and, and where the money goes, 
for other matches and how they allocate their staff. I, I can't be a hundred percent sure, but what I know is it's sort of been the culture. It's, it's what people, um, I don't know. It's, it's people know what they're getting around here and people seem to like it. People, the, the, the match has grown every year. Um, this is actually the, the first year since COVID that it's, that it's filled up. Um, so those are, those are kind of my theories, uh, but without sort of digging into the numbers more, it's, it's hard for me to be exactly sure what the, what the difference is, whether I could staff reset work elsewhere. If somebody decided to make it happen, I definitely think so. Um, you know, I, I, um, to the first part of the question, I have not traveled. The only match I've ever shot west of the Mississippi was the 2014, well, 2014 and 2017 uh, U.S. Nationals when they were in St. George. Okay. Obviously that's been a while, but um, that's that's kind of my best guess. But I think it can be done. You just need somewhere between 10 and 20% of the people who want to shoot your match to be willing to work it. And it's just a slightly higher level of, of staff commitment. Uh in order to, to, to make the numbers work versus just having, okay. you know, a, a CRO and, and two ROs on the stage. Okay. Kyle. I mean, yes, geographically, I think we have something unique in area six where we have a little bit more, um, of an RO base to pull from. Also, we tend to have a lot younger RO base in the rest of the country. Um, I've, you know, I've spent some time, Ben and I have been arguing about this for probably about a year now since we first started talking. And I've really spent some time trying to understand it and figuring out ways to make it work. And it's, it's always, I always, I always hang up on a few things. Um, and the biggest one boils down to, especially for nationals is staff numbers. So based on, you know, Ben's numbers, right, is it's still four staff members, just like we have for nationals now. Um, but the problem is like most of the bays that we use, especially at CMP in, uh, Marengo, um, if, 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 uh, Colorado had a, had a appropriate <laughs> magazine law, um, those bays are huge. So four people doesn't always work. Now, Roanne is unique in the fact that they only have, if I, if I remember correctly, four bays that really require more than three ROs. Uh, the entire down or the, the downhill bays are very, very short. They're two dimensional uh, as far as not having side berms. So you don't have the same struggles that you do with competitor or with uh, staff reset. Um, so bolstering the staff numbers to be able to put together something like nationals, you'd have to go maybe from 80 stage staff to something like 100 or maybe even 120, which would be absurd considering we're already basically at a break even before we even buy a single target. Um, and one of the things that always got me is it's like, there's a, there's this blanket statement of, well, staff reset is the way and that's what we should be doing. But you never really gone outside of, you know, maybe North Carolina, South Carolina and call it a, a, area six to see how the rest of the country operates. Because I can assure you that that's not how the rest of the country operates from a a national match level. Um, and then my final hang up, which is the one that I, I just cannot find an answer to is I'm sure we all can agree, right? We want competitive equity, right, Ben? Yes. Okay. So if we want competitive equity and we've got staff that are shooting on staff day and then resetting the match for themselves, they are walking, call it, let's say they only reset for 10 competitors per stage and 20 stages at nationals. They're essentially walking and pasting 20 stages. 
if you and I show up as paid competitors only, we only have to shoot those 20 stages. We don't have to walk very far. We don't have to do any extra physical activity. And from a competitive equity standpoint, it's a really, really tough argument to make. Hey man, I know you paid your money, so you get to sit here in the shade while we busted our ass on staff day. And somehow that's gonna be equitable. Now, Kyle, just a question on that. Um, are those, and I, 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 this isn't meaning to come off um, confrontational, but are those people that are going there to work the match, are they going there to win anything or are they going there to be a part of the experience, shoot the match, hang out? That's my question. Well, that's that's the argument, right? Is it if if they were if they were, you know, our, our typical RO core, uh, which is, you know, middle aged, able to take a bunch of time off work um, or they're fully retired and can spend as much time as they want at the match, then you could make the argument that we would need staff reset. Um, unfortunately, what what Ben talks about a lot is making nationals a, a singular event, one big event with restricted access. So the only way that if you don't earn your way in is or to be able to shoot the match is to then volunteer for staff. So now we have these younger staff members that are at a huge competitive disadvantage because the only way they can get in is by working the match. But they're able they have to basically work 100 times as hard as the competitors that paid. OK, so, I mean, but you look at guys like Tyler Meisenheimer, right? He worked staff at South Carolina and he didn't he win carry optics. I mean, he's still, he still shot very well at that match. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's anybody that has, that has shot on staff day, even at a, at a normal competitor reset match who doesn't think that being there on staff day with the hiccups of figuring out stages and just being on the range longer and, and everything else. I mean, working staff, it's always going to be a competitive disadvantage to some degree. Right. But if we're talking on a national level, it's, it's entirely different. You know, how many how many top level carry optic shooters showed up to the South Carolina sectional? Since we're referring to that, he was he was I guess I was technically the CRO, but he was my RO. Right. Tyler busts his ass. He, he works really hard. He's got a ton of energy and he puts a lot into the sport. But had some other competitors showed up that didn't have to do the same things that he did. I think he probably would have had a little bit tougher time winning. And I, I don't know if it would have been as fair to him. Maybe he would have made the choice to just, you know what? I don't want to work. I really just want to focus on trying to win my state championship. And that goes away from what you tend to push, which is if you're not able to make it via a, an earned slot, the only other option is to work the match, which puts you at a competitive disadvantage. Now, Ben, does does the additional um, ROs on the stage, does that negatively affect the bottom line of the match? Well, I mean... Are, like are I, you still in the black? Yeah, yeah. The North Carolina okay. section match has, has never lost money, even with the match okay. being half or two-thirds two full, um, because expenses are sort of scaled back. Um you know, things like the, you know, the variable parts, you know, the, the, the staff gift each year in years when we have more cash can be a little bit nicer and in years when it's been leaner. Um, I think 2021 uh, was in 2020 were obviously pretty, pretty lean years. Uh, but yeah, running a, running a staff reset match with the, with the staff package, I've mentioned the, the North Carolina section match since staff took over in 2019 has never lost money. 
And okay. this is the first year it's been full. I think you do a great job, by the way, with separating out people that are local versus the ones traveling in and paying them a little bit more. I wish more matches did that. Um, I think you guys do a phenomenal job with that. Yeah, I mean, the, right. the idea is, is just to sort of recognize the, the folks that um, are, are taking on a higher burden and so incentivizing them more, whereas, you know, the folks that can sleep in their own bed I'm sure they're happy to, and, and, uh, they, they don't miss the money. They're, they're happy to not be paying it out to the holiday Inn. Uh, all right. We all good with that topic. Sure. I, I have a bunch of, <laughs> I mean, I have a bunch of stuff I could ask questions about, but we, that ended up being a 45 minute conversation alone. Um, so we're going to move on to the next one and Kyle, you'll start first, but it's a two parter as well. Um, one of the things that I've heard you talking about is uh, committees, making sure the proper people are on the proper committees. Um, so how would you do that? But number two, how do you now influence as the Area 6 director, the other directors to actually accept what those committees find and the information they bring forth? I think naturally people are just, they're, they're resistant to change. Um, and the, the current structure, the way it is, is the board has essentially been in charge of virtually everything for years. Um, so kind of curtailing some of that power and giving it to people that actually know what they're talking about is going to take a little bit of time. It's why I started working on it over a year ago. Uh, I kind of noticed that every decision was being made by the same eight to 10 people, which I don't think is the way that it's done in any successful organization I know of. Um, so that was the simplest low hanging fruit for me. And the way I looked at it was really simple is if we have a, a membership base of almost 40,000 people, surely we have some experts in the field of accounting, finance, HR, um, any number of things that we can use. Then on top of it, something like match directors putting together guidebooks for new clubs helping new club or helping existing clubs expand their their member base. There's just so much stuff that can be done. And ultimately committees allow it like a a way to delegate some of those tasks out to where it's not just reliant on the same eight to 10 people who are already kind of stretched thin as it is. So they tend to push a lot of it to the employees of the organization, which are stretched even thinner to the point that I don't think that they're barely able to accomplish the things we want them to now. I, I certainly don't want to add any more burden to them. Um, so as, as far as, you know, changing or, or influencing their actions, it's just going to take time. It's a cultural shift for people to be able to understand and, and take advice from experts instead of thinking that they were the ones elected to do the thing. Therefore, it must be them and them alone. Okay, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a... This is a, a real legitimate problem. I mean, I think two two examples recently come to mind where a committee was formed to provide advice and the advice was ignored. Uh, by all reports, the first one was the discipline committee for Yi Min recommended mm -hmm. a level below having his RO cert taken away. That advice was right. ignored and his RO cert was taken away. Uh, from what I've heard, the fee structure committee had a report and that that was not what was voted on. Uh, they submitted their report and something else was voted on. So this is a real issue. And I mean, at the end of the day, if the board members choose to ignore the output of, of committees, 
then the committee, it has no binding power. So on the one hand, I think we genuinely need people on the board who are willing to admit what they don't know, who are willing to take advice from, from outside people. And I think whether Kyle or I win this election, that will, that will be in place, at least in the area six seat. Um, people can judge based on, you know, what they've, they've heard from, from whether, you know, their area director in other areas, uh, feels that way as well. Um, and other than that, I mean, I think the, I think the trick is actually having, um, having the reports from the committees included in the minutes so that when, if the board chooses not to, not to follow the recommendation, the membership at least knows that. And I think that having that level of accountability where, and this is, I mean, one of a dozen methods of transparency that I think USBSA could use, but I think sort of demystifying, taking the discussions and the actions that are taken during board meetings out of this shroud of secrecy, where at least you can see what the committee recommended and then you can see what the board voted on, there would at least be that that little increment more accountability if the board chose to ignore the recommendation of a committee. Okay. And, and you're okay with that level of transparency? Uh, I, I think it I, should be mandatory. Yeah, I, I'm not only I'm I not okay with it. I I think, I mean, committee committee members need to know when they're writing a report that will be submitted to the board that what is in there will be submitted, and if it is something that needs to be treated with confidentiality because it has to do, you know, let's say the report references some past HR incident with an employee who was disciplined or something like that then obviously in, in that case, confidentiality around that detail will, will need to be enforced. But yeah, by default, I think, I think the committee reports should just be made public automatically. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see what the secrecy gains us. It seems like we're, we're working so hard to keep the inner workings of this board. So hush hush for what? Yeah. And the benefit to, to basically making those reports uh, 100% transparent is even if you don't agree with it, at least you understand the the logic and the reasoning behind the decision that was made and you can see the process of how things were done. Um, and to Ben's point, right, the transparency is what's going to allow the membership to be and trust the board again. And I think that's where we should start on most things. All right. So one of you is going to be the area six director. The other one's going to be area nine. Okay. I just, <laughs> I just right now, that's it. All right. Um, now Bruce Wells, is he part of a committee? Does he have committee? committees? Okay. I don't have the list in front of me. Um, if I remember right, it is, um, no, not steel challenge anymore. Steel challenge has been changed. He is on the volunteer recognition committee. Um, and that's the only one I'm a hundred percent sure of, because I, I know I'm on that one. So that's the only one I know a hundred percent, but there was some shifting after Yemen had appointed the committees at the beginning of the year. So I'm, I, I don't have the list in front of me, so I can't be a hundred percent sure. What was the, what was the meeting where, um, Scott, what was Scott's first meeting? I want to say that was like February or March or something. It was pretty early now. 
So will they be, do you know if they will be reshuffling chairman uh, after the elections come January? Every January. So that process was okay. actually done in the in-person board meeting um, where we tried to enact a, a new policy that basically curtailed exactly. I mean, it was, it was basically everything I've talked about, right? Is that you, you must have at least one expert from the membership on the committee. And the idea behind that was is, is baby steps, right? You start with one, uh, eventually it becomes two, and then eventually it becomes three. And the idea is you want the committee chaired by a board member so they're able to relay the information and the report to the board for voting. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, you want as many experts as possible weighing in on the decisions being made. And that's how we get the better results that we need to begin making the progress that we have to do. All right. Now, I, I'm bringing that up because one of the things that was mentioned last night in our conversation was that what we talked very briefly mentioned earlier is restricted access. And one of those things they were that was mentioned by the candidates last night was finances and people being restricted access to that, which I didn't understand. Do you guys I mean, other than personnel, human resource type things. Do you see any situation where there needs to be that privacy and secrecy where only the board members see something like that? And sp specifically too, the, the item we were talking about was the breakdown of the cost of nationals. I don't know in our current form if we can break down each nationals by themselves. Uh, it, it's very possible. Uh, I don't know how accurate it would be. I, I know it's been done in the past, but the fact that we have so many nationals happening at once, um, it would be, I'm sure it's possible with, with the right measures in place. I don't know if we're currently doing that or not. Okay. Ben, do you see any reason to withhold any of that? No, I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, every dollar that comes into the organization belongs to the members and the board and the employees are just, just stewards of it. They're just, they're just redirecting the, the flow of it, but it's not their money. And so, I mean, the, the form 990 already requires us to disclose the salaries of, I don't know the exact number, but the highest paid X number of people in the organization. So the numbers that people really care about how much, you know, the, how much the managing director makes, how much the president makes, how much Jake makes, how much Troy makes. Those are all in the form 990. Uh, other than that, you know, the, the, the rest of the salaries, is that is that worth keeping secret? I, I just, I mean, to me, I, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand that the need for secrecy, what is it, what does it accomplish? It's not like, um, you know, there was a, a point made in the debate last night. We're not, we're not in a competitive market where somebody could, get a leg up on us, right? IDPA isn't going to be able to somehow edge us out in, in head to head market competition because they can see our cost structure. It's th th this level of secrecy that, that you sometimes see in a, in a corporate world just uh, it doesn't make sense to me. The only answer that, that I can really come up with, with which of why we're not seeing more transparency is kind of like what, what Kyle's saying. It's, it's either a lack of tracking or a lack of time being spent into preparing the reports and putting them into a into a digestible form. Um, I think Ben, you're we, we're kind of missing one thing that's that's really important there, right? Just like 
you know, I've been keeping you abreast of everything for uh, contract negotiations for Area 6 next year. Part of the, the, the secrecy that, you know, probably the only secrecy that I can really think of that, that warrants being actually kept private is what we pay the ranges. And the reason why is because once we start announcing what we're paying ranges, then it just basically allows, uh, we, we lose our, our bargaining chip as far as um, what we're paying ranges to be able to host nationals at their, at their you know, their range. Uh, so like if, for instance, all the, all the people that I'm talking to, if everybody knew what was being bid and what we finally paid to host Area 6 next year, well, then the 2025 Area 6 would probably cost a little bit more. And then the 2026 would probably cost a little bit more because they know that it's, this is essentially our floor and they can raise prices as they see fit. Yeah, but every dollar that we're paying is going to a range for hosting one of the biggest matches in the country. So, you know, it's not like um, it's not like that money is just being, you know, taxed and going off into the ether. Um, I, I, I don't. I'd have to think a little bit more on that one, but my my first reaction is that I don't know that necessarily having you know some kind of secret bidding process is is all that necessary. If you know if you say, hey, the budget says we can pay X dollars a shooter, and if you can't work at that budget, then we, you can't host our match. Then ranges can decide to take or leave that that cost structure. Um, but you know this this idea that USPSA by keeping secrecy retains bargaining power over individual clubs, which in a lot of cases are not, I mean, they're not, no, nobody's, nobody's buying yachts with the profits from, from running, uh, you know, the kind of range that, that hosts an area match or, or a nationals, um, race cars. You, say but, race but you see cars? what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Any, any leverage that, that USPSA headquarters gains comes at the expense of, of the range owner. Yes and no. I, I think this is one of those ones that we're probably going to agree to disagree on. Uh, I think in any contract negotiations, you want to leave the uh, the exact finances out of it. I think everything else makes a lot of sense, right? If we're spending money on targets, yes. If we're spending money on pasters, yes. If we're spending money on hotels, yes. Uh, but when it comes to the, the range structure itself and what we're paying each range, uh, I'm sure you know, the, the very for-profit ranges, uh, we've got three of them that I know of in Florida, would love to see what their competitors are actually charging and why they're losing bids. Um, so that's one of the ones that, like I said, I, I, I don't necessarily think that it's bad to keep that portion of, you can, you can do an overall cost and eventually get to the math anyways, but just blatantly saying this is what we're willing to pay eliminates the bargaining chip that we have to be able to get the best deal. And if we're planning, like for us, right, like the, the plan is to use the area six funds, at least for me, is to make the area better by hosting NROI seminars in each section annually. I need some sort of um, money left over to be able to host these seminars. Otherwise, the plans go out the window. Okay, so you're just saying the only thing that you might keep secret would be the actual cost of the range, the rental fee. That's it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're we're close. We're very close. There's just one little really detail that that you guys might disagree on. So since we're talking about finances, let's go ahead and well, you know what? We'll we'll come back to that. We'll give our brains a break for a moment. Um let's talk provisional divisions real quick. 
because we have a provisional division right now in limited optics came out May 1st. It's going to be at iron sights nationals. And at some point they're going to determine whether or not this thing is going to become another division, which uh, my bet would be that it is. That's doesn't matter. But what I'm, what I'm leading into is if it is accepted, do you guys feel we're at that point where we need to just do an overall realignment of the divisions instead of adding a ninth one and just keep adding on and adding on? Ben, you, you can start. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I think, yes, I, I think adding limited optics in addition to carry optics um, when they're so close together is does not make sense to me. Um, if, if you were asking me, you know, my, my personal opinion would be that we should that carry optics as it is with basically no weight limit, uh, is, is already so close to limited optics with one, the, with one forty millimeter magazines and, and, and all of that, that that should just become limited optics. You can have your race holsters and, and your magwells, and then we should have an actual production optics, which I think is where, you know, IPSC is going in, in the in the long distance too. I mean, they added production optics a while ago. Their production is much more narrower than ours. I'm not saying we adopt their production rules exactly, um, but I think I think having a a you know heavily modified semi custom optics division and a stock ish optics division is is a clear distinction. I think as they are on the books right now, carry optics has sort of morphed over the years with allowing more and more modifications. Uh, so that it is it is effectively 90% of the way there to limited optics. And the most common carry optics guns are shadow twos. They can just start cocked and locked. So to me, that would be my my initial position. Now, if this were actually something that was coming up for a vote and I would have a vote on the board, obviously I would want to hear from the membership and hear all the perspectives for and against and and weigh those arguments. But that's that's my that's my initial position. Um my inclination is is that we definitely should keep relatively close to IPSC, at least recognize things like revolver and single stack that match their revolver and classic divisions, even if they're relatively low participation. We don't have to give them standalone nationals. But I I do think, you know, something like limited 10 has outlived its usefulness. I I don't really see a, a need to to keep that around. But to me, the, the goal is not necessarily to have more or fewer divisions. The goal is to recognize each sort of unique area of competition that people are interested in competing within and and create a place for that to happen. And so to me, the, the idea that, that that there's some correct platonic number of divisions doesn't, doesn't really add up. But I think if you look at the divisions that we have right now, particularly how similar carry optics and limited optics are, I think realigning that that particular pairing makes sense and and basically bringing something bringing a you know if we look look at limited and production bring in a production optics and a limited optics then you the really only the only question is do you you know allow major minor in uh in limited optics and that's a whole other can of worms that i i don't have a strong opinion on and i have you know if i were asked to vote on that i would i would take feedback and i would want to become educated on that um, i don't have a strong opinion on that one uh, but I think that's that's really the only the only question as far as what we have in terms of carry optics and limited optics uh, right now. Okay, Kyle. 
Uh, I want to just touch on one of the comments that I saw come through about uh, where does the profit from the Area 6 match go. Um, there hasn't mm. really been a profit. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that's important about having somebody that's, you know, run businesses is if you plan on using some of the Area 6 proceeds for growing the area, then you need somebody who's able to kind of be able to set an appropriate budget and run a match in a way that it, it actually does have some top line revenue that's going to set aside enough money to be able to do the things they want. Um, so what I would say is uh, as far as the, if you want to dig deeper into that stuff is reach out to your section coordinator. Section coordinators are supposed to be emailed um, the match finances every single year. Uh, ben, you can kind of chime in on this one, but as far as I know, I think this year and last year were the only one I've seen since Bruce took office. Uh, I want to say I've seen 21 and 22. I don't know if we've seen 23 yet. Uh, okay. But yeah, that, 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 that information yeah. should be available. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, and, and I mean, I think the other thing worth mentioning is that Area 6, as it's been run, does does buy a lot of prizes, a lot of guns for the for the prize table and for the staff. So there there is, um, to some degree, that's where the money's going right now, is, is, is stocking the prize table. Uh, so back to uh, the question, though, um, the for for the, the, the divisional stuff, I mostly echo what Ben says. My my big departure from Ben is I don't have a vested interest in any division other than open. Uh, I, I like to I am a tinkerer. I like to go fast. So that's the only one I really have a, a, a real opinion on. The rest of it would just fall back on what the membership wants. Uh, I don't think that there's any reason why we need to add, reduce, anything like that, unless that's what the membership wants to do. Um, the rule book clearly covers what divisions get recognized at major matches. So as the match director, as a match director, if I notice that somebody's shooting a division that doesn't have enough people in it to be recognized, I might reach out and say, hey, either you know get one of your buddies to come shoot, uh, or you might want to think about changing divisions. So at least you're eligible for some mm -hmm. sort of prize. Uh, but I, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, is is the board you know this this omnipotent being where it's like we're able to to decide what the membership wants for them i don't think so i think that boils down to what the membership wants and the only way to do that is by asking the right questions okay yeah i mean i think i think to some degree the the goal is to is to go out and and ask it to create the things that where they don't exist before. I mean, there was obviously a demand for things like carry optics and PCC, but did the membership want to go from 10 rounds to 140? Did the membership want to go from 10 rounds to, to 15 or 10 rounds to what fit the box? I mean, there, there, there are a lot of decisions that are made, not necessarily that you're, you're going to get people who answer in every, every possible permutation. And so I think to some degree, that's where coming back and figuring out, okay, what is the underlying value of a division? What is what are we trying to create here, and then figuring out what rules implement that? It, classic example that I, I bring up all the time, you know, this idea of should production go to rules where whatever fits in the box, what you know, whatever base pad length fits in your gun when it fits the box. Well, then we're back to in production, you're still chasing springs and flat followers to get one extra round, which to me is is against the idea of production. Production should just be you take the mags as they come and, and run them. So when you when you identify that value, then the outcome, I think, becomes more more obvious. And so when you sort of figure out what 
what you are trying to do with a division than what rules to make to get you there becomes clear. I think a lot of the meandering and the confusion and, you know, things like, oh, should we allow revolvers with a dot on it to shoot in limited 10? It's it's the sort of just grab bag, you know, everybody's emailing asking about this. Let's just throw everything in a pot kind of attitude. And that's that's not the point. That's not the point of divisions. The idea of divisions is recognize certain levels, certain configurations of customization and, uh, you know, certain types of guns and certain sets of equipment that people want to compete with and then creating a place to do that. I think okay. this is another perfect example of a place that a committee would be well-structured, right? Somebody who, who thinks like Ben does, who has, um, you know, the, the computer software background to be able to put together the right types of questions and push them out to the membership. That's important. Um, I, I think again, relying on the board who is there to by and large, run the organization, that shouldn't be a task that they they necessarily are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. That should go to a committee. The committee submits their report, and then the board votes on it. Uh, if we keep weighing down the board, we're not going to be able to actually make any progress instead of just sending things to the committees like they're supposed to be done. I would agree. I mean, there's there are only eight directors, so they can't, they can't do everything, which is why I'm a, a big proponent of right people on the right committees to help make these decisions. Now, you guys mentioned section coordinators. I was a member of USPSA for four years before I accidentally found out who my section coordinator was. There's no easy way. Um, any plans of making it easier for your constituents to find out who your section coordinators are? Which one are you on? Uh, go ahead, Kyle. Okay. Um, so the section coordinator stuff, like like most things in USPSA, it just boils down to a, a popularity contest for a skills-based position. Uh, it, it's probably the most underrated and underappreciated role in USPSA. Uh, they have to deal with the clubs at, a, at an individual basis and kind of report back to the area director. They're also kind of like the, the whip, right? They're responsible for going around and making sure that clubs that aren't paying start paying. Um, and then doling out the, uh, the slots that are, that are awarded via, um, the activity credits. So there's a lot of stuff that gets done that most people don't really appreciate because like a lot of roles in USPSA, they tend to just hang in the shadows and, and get the work done. And the only time you really think about them is if something goes drastically wrong. Um, should they be more public, um, or, or more involved? I think it would be really good. Ben and I have had this conversation about uh, something that I had brought up at an in-person meeting, which was taking the new club guidebook and doling that out to a committee, having the committee complete these things, and then basically working within the confines of that uh, section and the section coordinator to make sure that the new club that wants to get started is assisted rather than them kind of figuring out everything on their own or reaching out to another club and kind of getting uh, some half-assed answers. So is it adding one more thing to a section coordinator's already kind of full plate? Yeah, but I, ideally it would be nice if the organization could take at least one or two things responsibility-wise away from the section coordinator to kind of free up some time so they'd be able to help grow the organization instead of just acting like this intermediary and trying to, you know, trying to get money from people. 
Ben? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I broadly agree with that. I mean, I think when, when you think about what, you know, let's say you make section, your section coordinator easier to find, which I don't think is, is a bad thing. It is, you can find it on the website. When you go to look at an individual club, you can see the, the section uh, coordinator information, but Stop it is interesting. reading your wife's comments. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that, is that considered coaching? Uh, no, no, that is, that's good to go. Uh, but I mean, I, no, I, I actually was aware of that because what I was trying to look for the other day was there's a, there's a, there's now a, a, an area director or an area page and there are pages for individual clubs. So even if, you know, your club doesn't have a, a web page, there's a USPSA page for it uh, and your matches are listed on USPSA. I think it would be cool to have a, a, a section page. And, you know, when you if you're a member and you sign up, you can see, hey, here's your area. Here's your section. If you have questions, yeah. reach out here. That said, you know, I don't necessarily think that section coordinators should be the first stop for all the newbie questions. Um, I, to me, having some kind of USPSA forum, you know, outside of the sort of uh, places like Reddit or Discord, where these these communities have kind of uh, sprung up, I think actually having a place where, hey, I'm new to USPSA, and there's a there's a forum for every section, and you can post in that section and say, hey, I'm, I'm curious, you know, and there, maybe there's a thread for every match. And people can ask questions and and find people who are going to matches and, and that sort of thing. So to me, in terms of of being being that resource to to get people information, if we could find a way to sort of structurally help people help each other through something like a forum, I think that would that would probably be a better solution. Um, but you know, barring that, I don't I don't think that making it easier to figure out, hey, here's your section coordinator. If you have a question, email them. They might give you a two line response that says, Hey, talk to Joe and here's Joe's email and he can help you out. You know, to some degree, that's, that, that's the coordinating job, right? You just sort of are a switchboard and you connect people and, Oh, Hey, I, you know, I live in town X. I want to shoot a match. Okay. Here's the nearest club to you. Go email the match director. He can get you squared away. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it would be a bad thing making it easier to get in contact with section coordinators, but I think figuring out what work is being done, there, like what questions are being answered and finding a way to structurally provide that value instead of having it be sort of ad hoc in, you know, uh, in a sort of one-on-one -on -one basis where it might be that 10 people all have the same question in a forum. The first guy can ask it, the other nine can just read it. But in email, you're just, you know, copy and pasting the answer or, or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think there are some, okay. some fundamental problems with that. Uh, number one, you know, a, a forum, anything you want to do on the website, not anything, but most things you want to do on the website. Now you have to be a member and you have to log in. Uh, if we allow just kind of an, an unregulated forum on USPSA.org, who's going to, who's going to man that, right? Like, who, I mean, have you talked to any of the employees and the, the two employees in the IT department? Cause I can assure you, they do not want to spin up a forum. They don't want to deal with all the stuff or who are we going to have moderate it? I mean, this is. I think there, that there Facebook does a really good job of a lot of this already. Most most clubs have a Facebook page. Uh, is it easy to find? No. Could it just be linked on the USPSA website? Probably. Yeah, and 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 my point was just had I gone onto the USPSA website, gone to the area map page, found out who my area director was, and then below them were the section coordinators. You know for whatever areas, or even, you know, if you run your mouse over the map, 
where it tells you, you know, when I'm over Virginia, it says area eight. Then maybe if I click on that, it tells me who the area director is and my section coordinator. You know, something uh, like that. It Just does something tell you simple. the area director. Um, it's when you go to the individual clubs, right? Because not every single club is an affiliated club with within a section. There are lots of independent clubs. Area six, if I if I remember correctly, I think has the highest independent club count of all of the areas. So if you're if you're searching for a specific club and you want to go and say, hey, like you know, who's my section coordinator? Again, a section coordinator is kind of one of those people that does a lot of stuff in the shadows. Area director tends to be, you know, more direct and match director is probably the person they should be contacting. I don't know if a section coordinator is the right person for that. They aren't really, they aren't really equipped to deal with all that stuff unless they take it upon themselves to make that happen. Okay. All right. Now we'll, uh, now that we beat that topic around a little bit, let's go back to finances for a minute <laughs> or two or three. Uh, now, that's obviously a big topic. The 990s, big topic, um, since nobody has seen one from last year yet that I'm aware of. A um, couple of things. What are your opinions on virtual meetings as in-person meetings, maybe cut costs? with technology the way it is today, does everybody physically need to be in the same location to hold an in-person meeting? Um, and are there other areas which you could streamline to help with the finances that, that, that you're aware of? And with this one, all right, Ben, you're up. I'm, so I think... I think in terms of building community, sort of building trust among the board, I, I actually don't think that starting the year off with the new incoming board members coming together in one central place and getting to spend some time face to face building relationships, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Okay. I think I think it probably, if done well, returns value to the to the company to the corporation. I think I think it's it can be money well spent. I don't know how the how things have been done. I don't know how much it's costing right now. I mean, obviously airplane tickets cost a certain amount. Hotels cost a certain amount. I don't know how much is being spent on meals. You know, I'm not saying go and, and go crazy with the, uh, with the expenses, but I, in, in the corporate world, in the remote work world, it's always been sort of a pillar that even if your team is entirely remote once or twice a year, get the team together for a few days and, and have some in-person interaction just because there is something about that, that brief, person to person, face to face contact that that builds a certain rapport that then translates online. Whereas if you've never met someone face to face, um, it's easier to just sort of see them as as just a stranger on the internet. So from a structural standpoint, I think having an in person board meeting as the sort of first board meeting of the year to to bring everybody together, including the new, you know, the incoming members, I think actually makes a lot of sense. You know, I think I think something that we have to be careful about in this process of getting serious about managing the finances is is not overreacting. So, for example, I think you know raising the the dues as much as they were raised in a single year was an overreaction. Was it time for a raise? Should the dues have gone up five bucks, and then maybe they go up five bucks next year? Okay, I can see that. But it seems like there's there's sort of a, you know I don't, I don't want to panic I don't want to overreact and so to me 
without knowing how much the the in-person board meeting costs, it, it's not high on my list of places to try and save money because again, in a in a sort of healthy functioning board, I think building that rapport to sort of set the tone for the year, I think probably ends up paying dividends in in more efficient conversation, people trusting each other, that sort of thing over the over the course of the year. Um, okay, hold that. I got a question for you, but when it come back, I want Kyle to go ahead and answer because we're go it's going to go deeper from what you said. So that was kind of an interesting one because I was at the the in person meeting in January and. Personally, I was actually really surprised that there was nobody else that was running, uh, not from Area 8, not from the president's side, and, and I was the only one from Area 6. That was really interesting to me that the, the people were running for a position and not really wanting to do research um, into what they're getting into. Uh, I can say from being there that there was definitely some expenditures that probably could have been saved. Uh, they had a huge banner, um, uh, you know, roll up signage and stuff like that that probably wasn't very necessary uh, but for the most part i don't think eliminating would would do any good and i think actually would probably do the opposite it would it would probably hurt the organization um and if you think about if we're going to do things we need to basically have that as the core of most of our thoughts will this help the organization and the in-person board meeting from like like what ben says is uh it allows you to put a, a name with a face um, it allows you to develop the relationships that you need to be able to move forward and, and get a lot of work done. Um, but just from a sheer time standpoint, I don't think that it could be done in two days in a Zoom call. Um, I was there, I want to say like 8 a.m. to 5.30 or 6 p.m. the first day. Um, and again, back at 8 a.m. And I, I cut out a little early on the second day. But we still didn't get, if I remember right, probably only about half the agenda items done. That's but there were a whole bunch of things that weren't on the agenda that got discussed too, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, that, that that's that's another issue, right? About you know whoever the incoming president is keeping you know keeping a, a tight leash on the agenda. But yeah, and and that's another thing that's really important with the in person side, right? Is it's it's if you're expected to to learn this stuff on the fly, which is again why I was kind of surprised that I was the only one there. If you're expected to learn this stuff on the fly. You, sh you need to have some time face to face to be able to see what's going on. Um, just sitting in a Zoom meeting, I feel like is a disservice to your constituents as far as being able to better represent them. You're, you're basically going, you're, you're starting at, at a very minimum a year behind because you need that experience to be able to see how the board, the board meetings are run, who is talking about what things, you know, there are lots of side conversations outside of the, the board meeting themselves that aren't necessarily on the specific topics that they're debating at that time. But it's really more of like a fact finding, like, hey, you know, how are things going in your area? We're seeing our numbers down. Um, these things are up. We're noticing this trend with the ranges. Like there's a lot of conversations that happen outside of the, the immediate board meeting that help the board members better represent and help their constituents. Okay. Now you guys both make very compelling arguments for it. And, and I agree with everything you guys have said. Can, can I ask ben, a, 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 just a, a few follow-ups though? Sure. Or just make sure. Your points. So, and I, I swear, I swear I was planning to ask this before Stephanie posted about it. So Kyle, you were able to sleep in your own bed and attend, attend that meeting because it happened to be in your hometown, right? Like where you live. 
Yeah, but I've also gone to every single in-person member meeting at all the nationals that I've attended also. So, you know, to, to single out just because I was there, I would have gone to it regardless if it was in Washington. Uh, for me, it's important if you're going to be thrust into this role to do your research and actually look at the thing you're going to do, right? Because even let's say we step into, you know, a, a huge problem. We have director's insurance, but I think at the end of the day, we both know that we're going to get the least common denominator when it comes to an attorney represent uh, an attorney representing us. So it's like, I don't want to step into a multi-million dollar organization where I could be financially liable and not have the, the, the plan in place if I see something wrong to just walk away. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm just saying if if the in-person board meeting had been held in Raleigh, I, I would have. I would have driven because it's driving distance for me, but. Well, I mean, uh, you, you also came down to Florida. You could have come to it. You came down to Florida just a couple months after that. Well, no, I was, I was in Florida for, for a class at the time, but that was, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then I shot a match after that, but. Right. So it's, it's personal benefit versus organizational benefit, but I, I mean, well, I, I understand. And there, were, and there was no, I mean, but nobody knew, I, I had no, no idea if I was even in the, in the running, I didn't know who else was, but but it's interesting you bring this up because I've actually been emailing Ted and Donna trying to attend the online board meetings as a guest. And last time I didn't provide 14 days notice. So they said, you know, we're not really set up for it. This time I did ask. Um, I'm I'm very confused. So the, the bylaws say that meetings are closed. But when I asked, Ted referred me to the in-person board meeting policy, which to me, the online meetings are not in-person, but that's what he pointed me to. The in-person says you have to ask with 14 days notice, but it refers to a section of the bylaws that was deleted when they rewrote the bylaws. So I have, I, I'm not really clear what the guest policy is. It's the same one that, that you attended under, but again, the, the yeah. policy refers to bylaws that don't exist anymore. So the, the policy needs to be updated. I but asked I, the I've, exact same question when I decided to run in October, 2021. Um, so I, I went right down the very, very similar path that you did. And ultimately, that's how I wound up going to the in-person board meeting. It, it wouldn't have mattered where it was. To me, it was so vitally important for me to go that location didn't matter. Um, and I don't think it should matter for anybody. If you're willing, if you're, if this is what you want to do, you should make the effort to go. My point is, I'm trying to do that now. I'm trying to attend as a silent observer of the board, the board meetings between now and the end of the year. And I'm getting stonewalled. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying, but I was right there with you, but oh. I'm, I, I'm aware of it. Okay. So that, that leads me into something I've been preaching for a while as well, which is, um, streaming board meetings. Are you guys amenable to that as if you get voted in as area director, or would you just prefer like what you're saying, Ben, instead of streaming it, maybe if people want to observe they can request and they join in as a silent guest of the show. Um, and um, now I don't remember who I think we started with Ben last time. So Kyle, there you go. <laughs> okay. So the question was what now? <laughs> okay. So the question is um, what, what are your thoughts on live streaming the monthly board meetings Okay. If, if you're not for that, then what are your thoughts on what Ben is saying where he's just trying to join virtually? I got Those you. are the, there you go. So originally I would have been a hundred percent, right? Because I want as much transparency as possible. What I found when I went to the in-person board meeting is that there is definitely 
it's definitely not held like a meeting that I would expect. Um, so doing any research into Robert's rules, you expect a certain thing when you go to a meeting and, and how the meeting is held and the order of things. And I didn't find that. So what the problem there is, is if somebody talks about stuff that shouldn't have been, which I got to see, uh, we don't have any way of preventing stuff that should have been held in an executive session from then being streamed. So I'm all in favor of recording the meetings. And I already kind of started working on that in a, in a roundabout way with um, asking Donna, who is our, our current secretary. So she's the one who is recording the meeting minutes. She's recording the meeting minutes in longhand. So the, 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 way, that the, the way that the motions are being recorded, I, I saw some stuff that was probably a discrepancy. Um, so I asked her, I said, would it help you if we started recording these meeting minutes? And the idea is that that's, that's kind of like the in, right? If we start recording these meetings and then eventually release all of them to the membership and move forward, it would definitely require some changes to the bylaws. 10.2 right now would not allow that at all, but it would be nice. That's another thing with recording versus live streaming. Recording does allow you to allow every single board member to watch the video um, release the information and say, yes, this can, this can go forth to the membership. So it wouldn't require a bylaw change, whereas live streaming would, unless they, unless they voted to, uh, wave 10.2 at the beginning of the meeting, which based on who's in there right now, I don't think they would do that. No, I agree. Ben. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, the question is, yeah, re recording, release the recording, Long-term, the goal is the meetings are so boring and efficient that there really is no point to watching the recording that you can just read the minutes and get the gist and and see. But yeah, to me, the going so far as doing the live stream, I think probably would end up being more of a distraction than a value as long as the uh, as long as the, the recording is not being edited extremely heavily. You know, if it's a five hour board meeting and we get 30 minutes of video without, you know, some kind of obvious, okay, there was four and a half hours of executive session in there. You know, there, there definitely is a, a little bit of, of room for the board to still mess around with editing the video before it's released. But, but I think that's probably a good middle ground. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the element of the, the live stream, I, I don't think it would add that much over the, to, in addition to the, the sort of complexity that it would add. Now that said, I, I do think having a policy and following it to allow guests to observe the meeting makes sense. I don't understand the, you know, the, the secrecy as it is now, the, the bylaw 10.2 around nobody can say anything about the meeting until the minutes are released. That kind of, that incentivizes them to keep the number of people in the meeting as low as possible because if something gets out, how do they know who, who said it? But that idea that that everything has to be kept top secret until there's sort of one unified version of facts to be released is it's strange to me. I, I, I mean, I think waving 10.2 at every opportunity makes sense. If somebody says something before the minutes come out that isn't substantiated in the minutes, then they're going to look like an idiot. So I don't I don't see the need to to, to me, the minutes are, are sort of the definitive corporate record of what happened. And so, yes, I, I see the value of drafting them, allowing the 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 members of the board to 
uh, have some have some some feedback and review and sort of finalize that and then publish them a few days after the, the meeting actually happens. That makes sense because it's it's creating a sort of permanent record and you want to get that right before it's set in stone. But the the part where you know everything is hush hush and basically you can't have guests because because then you know they might go, I guess, talk about what was said in the meeting. Again, it's all the secrecy for what? This is it's the members' money. What is what is so important, again, aside from contractual or legal things that need to be handled in an executive session for which there's already a, 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 a provision, aside from that stuff, anything that is discussed in an open session of the meeting should be open. I, I just, I don't, I don't get the, the need for all the secrecy, including the bylaw that says meetings are closed, except for, you know, the board of directors policy, which the only one, again, like I said, that I've been pointed to is the meeting, the in-person meeting policy. Okay. Yeah, and for the most part, Ben, I, I definitely agree with you that the the one thing with ten point two that I think the reason why it's there and what I've heard at least I I, I have I don't care you record me and put it right away or live stream me I don't I'm not going to say anything in a meeting that I wouldn't want to know anyways I think what it boils down to is if one of the board members um, shares a rumor and if it doesn't get substantiated in the bylaws, then it, it creates this, you know, inner turmoil of, oh, well, then they're hiding something. And that's that was at least that's the way it was explained to me is it, it's kind of meant to act as a unified message from all of the board members at once. Do I necessarily agree with that? I think it would be a lot easier just to record the meeting and release the whole thing, because then there is no getting around what you said or what you didn't say. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I've heard about the way people conduct themselves in the meeting sometimes with, you know, going going on at length and whatnot, I think if people knew that it was being recorded and published, I think people would act, you know, they, they would be on it, they would conduct themselves in a way consistent with, you know, being viewed by the public, not just your, you know, a, a small group of people who are basically held captive. Right, which is why I think just recording and releasing is the easiest thing. That way, in case somebody says anything that could be, uh, you know, potentially litigated, at least you're able to eliminate it instead of, you know, going out to the entire membership. But, but again, I, I think what the, the core root of the problem is, at least from my experience in that one single meeting, which is a very, very small sample size, is we're just not trained up, or at least the, the current board is not trained up on the way that a proper meeting should run. And so like, I've, I've you know, I'm sure you've heard me say it, but I, I, I witnessed somebody make a motion and then before anybody else could say anything, he played devil's advocate to his own motion. And I mean, I was just kind of left there like with my jaw on the floor, like you guys are allowing this. Um, and that happened not a lot, but it happened a few times over the weekend where it was just like this stuff that was blatantly against Robert's rules. I don't know if that would be good to release in a live stream. Um, <laughs> Uh, again, would would just some 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 training in Robert's rules and how to actually host a meeting and act in a meeting benefit the organization? If we look at again going back to the root, would it help the organization? I think it would, and I think that's somewhere we probably could benefit from spending a little bit of money. Well, and uh, okay, and to add to that point, I mean, you can't expect everybody coming into the organization as an area director to have that kind of experience. So I agree. That's probably not a bad place to spend some money. All right. Um, now we, we kind of touched on virtual. Oh, 
I never got to the question I had for you, Ben, when you first answered, which was what um, you mentioned that in-person meeting is not where you would start with cost cutting. That would not be a priority for you. So since we're talking finances, what is your priority as an area director? So a, a board member, one of nine, where do you think is the number one cost savings place we need to look at? I, I'll be honest. I don't know that that I have that information. Oh, um, that's fair. That's a fair answer. Okay. There, there have obviously been a number of expenses that have grown over the past few years. You know, we have the the 2021 and 2022 finances. In both of those years, revenues exceeded expenses. So, if the rumors are true that in uh, sorry, we have the 2020 and 2021. And going back, I think to 2017, we have those finances, and in those years, the, the the organization took in more than it spent. If the rumors are true that, and it sounds like they'll probably release the audit report, maybe it's on the agenda for the, for this upcoming August meeting. If the rumors are true that we lost two to three hundred thousand between operating losses and investment losses, seeing what changed, I think, and and sort of where the costs are growing, where are we spending our money? I think digging into that would be would that would be necessary before kind of trying to, to to make any pronouncements because yeah from the outside i don't i don't know that that i can really give a qualified opinion on that i have some hunches i i wonder how much is being spent on things like like travel you know i know those those are things that are very sensitive to inflation um it could be you know staff costs national costs i i certainly think that that yeah i could speculate but I, I don't okay. actually know with the available information. And I don't know that I, you know, if I'm not on the finance committee, I'm, I, I would be, I would basically be looking to them to, to deep dive into that and present a report. And, you know, once they have their report as a board member, you can ask probing questions and say, well, did you look at this? And if they didn't, then they can go back and look and, you know, update the report or whatnot. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to, with the available information, try and speculate further. I got you, Kyle. Um, like Ben, right? Without seeing the finances, I feel like I could probably do a lot better job if I got to see what was actually happening. Um, I do know from conversations with board members and employees, uh, areas that are being cut. Uh, we finally cut our ties with the old um, home base for USPSA, which was, if I remember right, five thousand dollars a month. Um, and that number could definitely be wrong. I might be wrong about that, but I know, I know it was a lot. Um, so if we're able to, you know, start looking at expense reductions and, you know, a committee report probably would have been really nice to see where they were looking at for revenue gains. Um, there's only, you know, in a, in a business, there's really only two things you can do. You can cut expenses or you can raise revenue. Um, so you know, are they doing those things? It looks like they're definitely raising revenue. And uh, <laughs> we'll see how much it, it helps in a year. Um, but the expense stuff, it's hard to say without the, the, the exact answer on what's currently being cut, because they're not really talking about that. That's information that as much as you know, the relationships that I've built over the years, they're not really sharing a lot as far as what is being cut. Um, other than they're working on it. Uh, and that's all I really have. Okay. 
And I think those are fair answers. So it's hard with actually, you guys are being nice about it. The lack of information out there to, to look at. All right. D-N-R-O-I. Last night I could not say that properly, so I am going to say it slower and enunciate. <laughs> Kyle, you're a range master. Ben, you're a CRO. Um, we, we know the situation with Yemen. We know that the bylaws state that you guys must, at a minimum, be an RO in order to take office. Like, you must have it the day you take office. If you do not, you're supposed to not be able to take office. You resign. Now, my question is this, though. When it comes to board members, and, there, and we, we touched on it briefly, where you get committee feedback, you have three RMIs doing an investigation, they come back with their recommendations, the DNROI makes his own decision, or her own decision. This is not about an individual. This is just about a position. Um, is able to then make a decision that could potentially remove that board member from office. Should that be allowed or should it go to a vote of the full board before that can happen? Uh, I think I started with you last, Kyle. So I'll start with Ben. You see, you hear all that confidence? I think it was the other <laughs> way around, but I could be wrong. Okay, that's why I was like, uh, I think I might be backwards. I might be Polish. Yeah, I think it was the other way around. Okay, so Kyle, you can start. Um, yeah, so I, I think I've talked about this one ad nauseum, it seems like, where a properly structured committee with legal experts probably would have caught, uh, caught that during a bylaw change. The bylaw committee ultimately recommended that, and the board voted to add it to the bylaws, which allowed 7.8 to circumnavigate 7.7. 7.7 is the removal of an officer or director with three-quarter majority board vote. And I think that allowing a, a bypass via 7.8 defeats the whole purpose of 7.7. .7. And having a singular person able to make that decision is, is wrong. Um, there's no other way to put that. That's, that's just wrong. 7.7 um, .7 should be the de facto. So even if 7.8 happens and they happen to lose their RO certificate, it should go back to a board vote. And the board vote should always be three-quarter majority because it should take extenuating circumstances for a director or officer to be removed from the organization. It should not be a majority. It has to be something so serious that it requires a, a supermajority. Agree. Ben? Yeah, no, I think I think the the bylaw around removing a board member should be the sole way of a, a board member being removed. Maybe, you know, there's some language around uh, if if they no longer meet these terms that automatically triggers a 7-7 vote without someone having to make the motion. I could, you know, maybe that, but that would be the, the as far as I would go um, in terms of, yeah, there, there should be no process by which someone is immediately and without their consent removed from the board outside okay. of you know an actual 7-7 supermajority vote. Okay. Uh, you guys have had uh, bunches of IPSC matches in your area. Uh, there are people there are people that are looking to travel internationally to shoot IPSC matches. Currently there doesn't seem to be a whole lot that 
the organization offers in way of assistance with learning, you know, what the different rules are, where they're going, how to do it. They might send an email to that IPSC regional individual saying they are um, a member in good standing, so they're able to shoot the match, but there doesn't seem to be much beyond that. What are your thoughts on creating something somewhere, somehow, that helps those individuals that want to go abroad and shoot maybe the Euro Extreme or, or some other IPSC match? So, Ben, this would be yours. Yeah, I think I think that's I, I think that is something that that is a place where headquarters sort of centralizing the job in in one place could actually provide value. You know, my whenever I look at something, the question is, is this best done at the club level, at the section level, at the area level, mm -hmm. or at the national level? And I think this, you know, without question, this is something that is best done kind of once and centrally. The question is how to go about it. I mean, in theory, IPSC says that you're supposed to get approval from your regional director before you can shoot a match outside of your home region. So if that policy were actually being followed, in theory, the, the regional director would have sort of a, a record of who all was going to what international matches. I have no idea if that policy is followed to the letter, if some matches do, some matches don't. So yeah, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a certain person who just steps up and says, you know, I'm the sort of international travel coordinator and it's sort of a volunteer position or it's a, an email list and people can sort of volunteer to, to be on it. But as a way of people saying, Hey, I'm looking to travel to, a, you know, there was apparently a big match in Suriname. I, I have no idea what the gun laws are like in Suriname. Has anybody ever traveled there before? Does anybody know somebody like you're saying you, you can contact the, um, the, the match director, for that match and and they may be able to to provide some information. This is one of those places where I would I'd probably if if we were actually looking at rolling something like this out, I would I would lean on I'd probably ask Luigi Lee who's traveled and, and shot a bunch of matches. You know, I know he and I are, are on you know good terms. He probably knows a lot more about this what the best way to go about this would be. But yeah, I think having having something that isn't necessarily a a, a huge it wouldn't even necessarily cost any money. I mean, it could be a section of this theoretical forum, it could be an email list, but just some way of having some contact point where people who want the the rundown on, hey, here's the official policy and process to follow, but you know, maybe there's some unofficial way to expedite things or make sure you submit this with that at the same time, or they'll ask, you know, all, all those little tips and tricks at any time you're dealing with government and paperwork. Once somebody's been through it, being able to share that knowledge with the next person, I, I think having a conduit for that would definitely go a long way for the people who are interested, which isn't most of the membership, I'll admit, but having that as a resource, I think would be, would be a good thing. Okay. Kyle. Uh, I've traveled abroad. Not, not a lot. I've gone to Canada, Jamaica, Jamaica is a lot easier for me, obviously. Uh, but Canada for sure. And I, I generally just kind of did what I've talked about, right. Is it's, I formed my own committee of people that I, I lean on for information uh, reach out to somebody like Manny Bragg, uh, Ipsic Alex, who was in Canada, who kind of guided me through the whole process. Um, you, know, you have your, your people that you lean on. It, I don't know if it, a centralized single time database would be a good thing because like Canada, I went three different times and every single time I went through, there were different rules and regulations. So if you don't have uh, a document that's kept up to date, you could put USPSA members uh, in a potentially sticky situation. Um, 
would that be something that like a, an IPSC committee would be good for? Probably. Uh, but I don't know if, um, I don't know if having a, like a, a document that does not stay up to date would be the, the best option there. Well, it, I look at it as like what was kind of mentioned. You could just have in that document links to individuals, you know, contacts you can reach out to. Becky Yackley before the world shoot had a big blog post on international travel, things you might want to think about packing you know, actions, all of that other stuff. So there, there is information out there, but you, you may not know that somebody has that information available. If we could put it under an umbrella, that's what I'm looking at is, and it sounds like both of you are okay with the idea of trying to put something or put all the international travel stuff under one umbrella to at least assist members, especially the first, you know, the first time you go abroad is going to be the first, the worst. So yeah, but again, I, I think that we're, that's not a, that's not a board specific task. Um, I, I think, again, that should go to something, you know, again, like a committee where you have people that are experts, so, you know, Ben mentioned Suriname. Uh, I almost went to that match. Shannon Smith was the match director. You ask Shannon Smith how to get there with a gun. You're, you're going to get the wrong answer. Sorry, Shannon, but <laughs> um, right. I mean, it's like he, he was heavily reliant on the guys that were bringing him in to be the match director. So it was like this, this transfer of information that, that didn't quite happen correctly. So again, it, it's how, how do we go about that? And is it worth resources at this moment? I don't know. I think that, I think that we have a lot bigger things that we need to tackle first. Uh, I can understand the, the need for it. Um, but <laughs> I think that maybe it would be better the people that are so interested in it. Maybe it may be a good opportunity for them to start a committee and work on it and, and help USPSA members uh, as a volunteer uh, instead of picking up a timer tablet or a hammer, they've got another way to be able to help. I didn't hear anything you just said. I'm not going to listen to you. Just kidding. No, I, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think, yeah, if you were looking to bootstrap it's this good tomorrow, point. like doing it as a, as an email list where people can just say, you know, hey, I'm looking to travel to this match. Uh, you know, has anybody traveled here before? And then, you know, people can sort of say, oh, yeah, so-and-so went there. Here's, you know, email them, that kind of thing. Put put people in contact. So, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, just, yeah, documents get out of date for sure. Uh, so having yeah. it be a, a static thing, but, you know, being able to be put in contact with folks who had certain experience would be helpful. And then, yeah, again, in theory, this is all there's also this information stream going through the the regional director through the USPSA president. So we ha so if we have a president, which of the two candidates, I think both are, are pretty passionate about international travel. So I think both of them probably would have some input on, you know, when when you see the third request come through from, you know, the Suriname match, well, maybe you create a, you, you know, an email list, you just tell everybody, hey, you guys are all going if you have any questions, kind of talk amongst yourselves creating those connections, I think, I think doesn't really cost anything and, uh, would and make your it committee, Kyle. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> would, uh, okay. Would, would be one of those places where USPSA can sort of leverage technology to, to get things done and make connections without having to invest in any physical infrastructure. Okay. All right. So the, the next one, uh, you could say it's a little, they're related, but they are separate. So the first one I'm going to talk about is we spoke last night about code of conduct 
I believe it's in the next agenda with the board of directors meeting. Um, are you guys for or against a code of conduct and why or how? And this would be Kyle. Sorry, we started with Ben on the last one. Uh, I don't know if a code of conduct is necessarily needed um, as much as a defined line as to where we would no longer like you as a member. I think that's probably a lot easier, right? If you're if you're doing something illegal, probably shouldn't be a member. Um, I, I don't even know if there's really too many other things that I can personally think of. Um, but a, a no, I don't think I don't think I've thought about this one a million times. I, I really can't see where a code of conduct. The rule book clearly covers when you're at a match. Outside of a match, we can't look at regulating people's speech. That's that's retarded. I mean, we live in America. Um, I, I think that you're going to have people that are obviously dissatisfied and letting them vent is, is the way to go. Um, should we look at punishing them for, for them expressing their opinions? Absolutely not. Uh, but I do think that there needs to be a line in the sand. And I think that's where somebody like an HR professional would probably do a lot better job than I ever would at defining that line and what processes and steps need to happen to make sure that we have those policies in place and they get followed and relayed to the membership so they know how far they can go before you're permanently removed as a member. Okay, Ben? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, we, we have this policy around suspending memberships. I think what the, the, the thing that, that needs to happen in the short term is just when people are suspended or banned, being clear what they did to earn that. And that sort of, by looking at those things, you can figure out, okay, this is too far. But I think any any kind of code of conduct is is going to be, you know, like Kyle's saying, most of what's happens on the range is already pretty well defined. Unsportsmanlike conduct can be can be somewhat vague, but that's you're always going to have to take things on a case by case basis. But I, I just to me, I, I don't think the code of conduct is a it's it's not a silver bullet that that solves any of these issues. I think the people who say, oh, if we get a code of conduct, then they're going to ban people for speech on the Internet. And I was like, well, that, that already happened. The the <laughs> the the bylaw around suspending and banning members is is pretty broad. And so to me, I think just giving greater clarity on, hey. Paul Hendricks caught a lifetime ban for cheating, and this is why and how. And, you know, Ben Steger was caught a lifetime ban for this. Right. And, and make let people know here's what's out there. And here's why, and you know he, what the judgments are, because you know the current policy of of keeping those things hush hush. Less so with the the most recent round of bans and those they they publish the names, but I know I don't think they ever published you know Paul Hendricks's name or or Kyle Soul's name or you know these these people that were that did receive lifetime bans and um, for cheating. And to me, if if you're not going to say who's banned. So if they show up at a match, you know that they're not supposed to be there and you're not going to say what they got banned for, then, then how do you know where the line is? So I think letting people know what is and is that what's in and out of bounds, I think is, is really more important than having some sort of high level, you know, vague document about be respectful and all that. Cause yeah, I mean, to Kyle's point, it's don't do illegal stuff. Don't cheat. Don't gain an unfair advantage. You know, other than that, even even within those things, you, you're, there's going to be some judgment, and and at the end of the day, that's that's what the board is is charged with. 
Agree. Okay. So the other part of that is this. There, with that, there's. Uh, it seems to me from the outside looking in that sometimes these board meetings can get a little heated. Uh, discussions between different board members can get heated. Um, we started with Kyle last time. So Ben, the question is going to be, what experience do you have with conflict resolution? So, I mean, just sort of the, the regular garden variety stuff, um, a working, you know, being in a workplace and, and figuring out how to get things done with people with different sets of goals. Uh, and then, you know, just everyday sort of interpersonal conflicts, you know, family and, and that sort of thing. And in, in almost every case, it comes down to people, people will draw the line until they feel heard. And if you can actually state their argument back to them in terms they find acceptable and agree that that you are hearing their case, but you disagree, you still disagree with it. Typically, if they at least feel heard and and they they're not just feeling ignored, then you can actually come to some kind of mediated uh, you know, negotiation, negotiated uh, arrangement in the middle. And so to me, the, the key really is people tend to really dig in their heels. They tend to just become totally implacable when they feel like they're being ignored or misheard. And if you can get to a point where someone at least feels like their point of view is being taken into account, even if it, they're not getting their way, people tend to sort of go along with the, the decision or at least be willing to agree to disagree. Okay. Kyle, did you hear all that? Uh, I didn't hear Ben, but I heard the question. Uh, kind of okay. Kicked some stuff and messed up. Um, I just thought you didn't want to answer the question. <laughs> no, actually, I think this one actually, That's a joke. I think this one highlights, highlights one of my skill sets, right? So I, I, uh, I am okay. a master. Uh, and I feel like when I talk to people about the, the role, when they're considering becoming a range master, that's always one of the, the number one things I always say that rules is actually number three, it's conflict resolution and dealing with adversity is going to be your, your most important attributes that you should have to be a good range master. Um, so, I mean, I deal with conflict resolution at virtually every single match, um, uh, my experience, uh, <laughs> My, my previous life, uh, being a professional poker player, I've dealt with uh, kind of unique, unique experiences when it comes to conflict resolution. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say that's probably what I'm best at, actually, is, is dealing with dealing with the conflict resolution stuff. And uh, yeah, I think my experience speaks for that. Okay. Can you give an example? As far as what, like conflict resolution in a match, or whatever this uh, irregular poker conflict resolution. <laughs> I mean, besides plenty of times where people get angry at night because they've been drinking and losing tens of thousands of dollars and wanting to fight everybody in the room and pulling guns and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, you learn how to deal with conflict resolution pretty well. So what do you do? How do you handle a situation like that? You talk to them. Talk to them, find out where they're coming from. The biggest thing you can do is relate to people, understand, you know, what they can do. Uh, in, in those instances, ultimately, those people wound up getting that person wound up getting uh, that, that was interesting. That, that person wound up getting uh, forcefully removed from the game. Um, 
So I'll just leave. I'll leave that one because that's that's definitely not a, a subject that I like talking about. So uh, if you want to talk about match conflict resolution, I'd love to talk about that stuff because I deal with that on a day to day basis. Yeah. Can you give an example? Sure. Uh, one of the currently suspended members, uh, Mr. Brett Wally, um, decided to place a by rule loaded firearm with the safety off on a barrel. Um, I saw him rack the round out. And so when he placed the when he placed the gun down, I knew that it was I knew that the gun was safe because I saw the round leave. He didn't have a magazine in. So I chose not to stop him because I knew the gun was safe. Afterwards, I spoke to him and said, hey, man, like next time you do that, the rule says this, that that could have been a DQ. Uh, and he became very hostile. And if you ever de dealt with Brett, that's just the type of person he was. Um, and from there, it was basically a talk him down off the ledge. Ultimately, he wound up emailing Troy and CCing me. We both had a conversation with him. Um, and it was a pretty easy resolution after that once he knew the rule. But he didn't feel in the moment like like his concerns had been addressed. He, he felt like he needed to escalate to Troy for redress of grievances. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, at, at the time, I wasn't an RM. I basically just said, hey, man, like, this is this is what happened. I know the rule. He felt that he read the rule differently. Um, I tried to show him the rule. He didn't feel like listening. So he emailed Troy while we were at the match. And by the end of it, it was uh, it was a done deal. By uh, the end of the match? Yeah. Okay. By the, by the end of the match, everything was calm. Um, I've dealt with that one. I mean, Florida Open being cursed out in Spanish, uh, attacking an RO. Uh, actually, I think Emen might have been there for that one. Um, dealt with, yeah, I mean, you, you deal with a lot of heated individuals as an RM, and it, it's you're constantly dealing with conflict resolution. In the case of uh, a competitor yelling at an RO, there were two back-to-back -back DQs. Uh, the competitor was arguing basically range lawyering for the, the second DQ that was clearly a 180 break. And when he was talking to me, the RO that saw the incidents came up and, and was, you know, began speaking about what they saw. And he quipped back with some, some pretty nasty words. And it was a, a very simple, you know, hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to go apologize. Otherwise, it's going to be three DQs and two shooters. And he wound up not leaving the range before coming apologizing to both of us. Okay. So he basically when given the choice to be DQ'd or apologize, he chose to apologize. Eventually. Yeah. He went and apologized to the, the, the range officer first, um, which was probably a good choice. And then by the end of the match, he came and found me and said that he was completely out of line and apologized for his behavior and said that it wouldn't happen again. Yeah, I guess the challenge will be in, in the board. And I mean, this is a challenge to both of us. I, I'm not saying I, I have a leg up but in this either. But, you know, in there isn't necessarily a clear cut rule book. I mean, uh, there's Robert's rules. But as we know, that 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 sounds like that's not really followed closely. And so, yeah, you, you have this this situation where both sides can feel like they're in the right. And yeah, how do you how do you get somebody to, to come off their come off their stronghold and, and come meet you in the middle? when there's not a, a rule book to lean on. It's yeah, I'm I sure feel it's like a I've, I've done a pretty good job of doing exactly that, right? The, the the board members were obviously very resistant to change when it came to the committee structure. 
And I think it's pretty evident that we're, we're making inroads on that with two committees and we're working on the third one right now. So as far as conflict resolution and dealing with people not wanting to do things initially, that's, yeah, again, the evidence is there that I've already done it. Um, I stepped away for a second, but did, did you mention a particular instance where you did that? No, no, I, I was, I was giving, I was just talking about sort of references to, uh, sort of personal life and, and work conflicts, but that, you know, generally I think making people feel heard is, is what, uh, can, can oftentimes break down the resistance. Uh, but actually Dave, I, I, uh, mentioned this, I hope we're not sort of going too far afield here, but, but I was actually curious, yeah, Kyle, you've, you've mentioned sort of your, you had a hand in the expansion of the, the steel challenge committee and the, uh, now the multi-gun committee to include non-members, what sort of at a very granular level, what, what was your involvement with that and how did you make it happen? Because, and sort of as a secondary question, I suppose you were, you were the, the policy that you were proposing at the in-person board meeting ended up not being adopted, right? Not in its entirety. No. Um, but the steel challenge committee, the members that Zach Jones mentioned before the uh, policy was initially kiboshed by Sherwin uh, allowed Yemen to appoint. The bylaws clearly state that it's the president that appoints the committee members. So because Zach Jones had mentioned those three names, he was able to then appoint those three members and act as a test bed in proving that the theory works. And then from there, it's basically just been a slow, arduous grind of showing that the steel challenge committee is the structure that we should be using. So it was, it was you men nominating those people that, that was, that you, that was sort of your, your influence there. Yeah. I think I came to you probably a little over a year ago when uh, he was in the election, if I'm not mistaken. And that's what we talked about at that time. That was when I was heavily in my research phase, as far as running for area six, I was reading a lot of books on board structure and committee structure and basically trying to see where the breakdown was between what I read about in each individual board that I was researching and what we have. And virtually across the board, that was the biggest issue that I kept seeing. Uh, and then you pair that with a lot of the stuff that was done at that time. It was we were beginning the process of the um, basically the, the discipline procedures for uh, the four individuals. And it became really evident that we should not have the people that feel slighted in charge of then suspending people. So it kind of reinforced what I had read about and what I believed and started working on that we should be having committees of unbiased people that are experts in their areas, making these recommendations to the board instead of the board that are not experts making all of the decisions. But but at a sort of boots on the ground level, the the the, the actions that you have taken were kind of putting the bug in Yemen's ear, ear about nominating these folks. Yep. Yeah. I mean, not just Yemen. I I talked to board members also. Does that answer your question, Ben? Yeah, I, I just did. He'd, he'd sort of taken credit for it, and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, well, yeah, I don't I don't have a way of voting. So the only thing that I could do was work with people within the, the confines of where I was. So the only thing that I could do at the time was talk to the people who had the power to make that change, try to convince them of what was wrong. Similar to how I sent you a book, right? I, 
I forget which one I sent you. I think it was the uh, the little book of boards. Um, doing stuff like that, sending people to books, showing them where our breakdowns are versus what is talked about nationally. And I think that's what's really important is if you can show somebody else's expert opinion, like a book, and say, look, this is I'm not just pulling this out of anywhere. This is what I'm finding in book after book after book after book, referencing multiple organizations across the entire nation. This is what we should be doing. And that's kind of, yeah, absolutely no. I, I could not vote on it. So of course it was not me solely, but being able to talk to these people and let them begin to understand where I was coming from and offering not only an explanation, but proof of why I was pushing for it kind of led to those discussions that ultimately change the way that the structure is now happening. So, okay. So, but the proposal that, that you brought up didn't like, it wasn't even in the minutes. So was it, did you get a chance? No, to... the idea was to spring it at the board meeting, uh, because there were, I, obviously when you're talking about stuff with board members, you, you, you send out feelers, right? So the idea is you see who is, who is initially for or against a particular thing and I did that basically to figure out who was for or against it so that if we met too much opposition that we should it should be something that should be sprung last minute versus a slow introduction and we basically came to the conclusion that not enough people were on board and so we decided on a spring it at the in-person board meeting the president is the one who sets that policy so it's very easy to work with Yi Min in that instance and write a particular policy that basically forces that change instead of going the, the long way around and asking each individual board member to get behind it. Good. Yeah. It's a good discussion. I like it. All right. Make sure I didn't skip anything here. All right. Um, this would be back to Ben. Area 6 is a, a very large geographical area. I, I don't even know how long of a drive it would be, say, from Raleigh down to southern Florida if there were a, an area match held down there. I'm guessing at least probably, what, 10 hours? 8 to 10? Oh, at least, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, would either of you ever be open to the idea of rearranging the areas to make them so that they're not as difficult for people to be able to um, travel from one end to the other? Uh, and Ben, this would be you. Because you're, you're thinking sort of, in the context of, of where is the area match hosted? Yes. Anywhere within the confines of area six, if you put mm -hmm. it on, you know, a North, South, East or West extremity, then, you know, we'll say half of the people, it's going to be completely inconvenient, but I mean, it, it may be forced because that may be the only place you can hold the match. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, the answer to the question is sort of contained in the premise, which is what is, you know, what is the purpose of the areas? And, and right now the areas sort of have, have two jobs. One is each area elects a director who speaks for them. And the other is each area hosts a, a match. That's a sort of championship within that area. 
And from a representation standpoint, you, you know, someone being a member of one of the more popular areas, I believe area six is, is the most populous area in that sense, you have sort of the least input. So if we, if the goal was to have areas be roughly equal in population, then yes, obviously, you know, you would want to rebalance the, the areas as populations shift. If the goal is to just have them be sort of geographically contiguous, then yeah, I think, I think looking at, at readjusting them, I mean, I know, especially uh, out West, you know, some of the, some of the, the distances you have to drive just to get to a club match are, are, are measured in multiple hours. So I could, I could see it being a discussion. I don't know that it sort of solves an urgent problem within like, I don't know that there's a, there's a, a, an urgent problem to be solved currently related to that, but I could certainly, if it were to, to come up at some point in a meeting, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything especially sacred about the, the current boundaries and if redrawing them in a way that made them more either contiguous or made the, the, the drive smaller for hosting the area match, I wouldn't be opposed to that, but again, it would be a question of sort of, is that, is that the most important thing to be spending time on at this juncture? Okay. Kyle. Yeah. Mostly echo what Ben says. Uh, the, the biggest thing obviously is it's, it's geographical. Um, and, and I lean back on, you know, right now is, is that something that will benefit the membership? I don't think so. Uh, does, does making it smaller in any way, shape or form benefit the membership? I, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, just the numbers of, of area six championship last year and the previous year and the year before that, it, plenty of people are going 400 plus, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, it's not like it's, uh, not being traveled to, uh, and then we also have a lot of people that fly in. So I think the more important thing is a, a larger area, uh, the area that we have affords us more opportunity from a, a match director perspective. Like I'm in the process right now of narrowing down exactly where we're going to put area six championship next year. And I'm able to choose from a lot more ranges or we are, cause I'm involving Ben in the process. Um, but we're able to choose from a lot more ranges, which gives us more opportunity to put on the best match, which at the end of the day does benefit the membership. So I, I think leaving the area the way it is and, and keeping it quite large is fine. Uh, is it a time commitment for the area director to travel around and see everybody? Absolutely. Uh, outside of, um, outside of Mississippi and Tennessee, I've been in every state so far this year. So I don't think it's impossible, but it's certainly, you, you, you have to be committed to it. Okay. And ju just for the numbers part, area six, 2022 was 496 and 2023 was 425. The, the right. match, the match had that yes, many the, the number yeah. of competitors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, area six is weird, right? Because it's, it's the first area match on the calendar. So there, there isn't a lot of competition. So you'll, you'll get people, you know, a lot of people coming in from outside the area to shoot it as well. So it, it usually fills up. Gotcha. All right. So we have two left and this is more of a, a statement. And if it's a positive, then you know, if you would expand on that, but, um, so one thing, Dave, that I think would be really good to talk about before we move on. So sure. one of the ideas that ultimately 
came about because of the committee structure change also is it allows more members to begin volunteering outside of picking up a timer tablet or hammer and you get more involved with the inner workings of how the organization functions what that should hopefully allow is you know call it 5 10 15 years we develop enough of a volunteer base that has inner working experience that maybe we look at separating out the area director position which is like your popularity contest you run the match you're the guy that goes and you know, visits everybody and everybody loves you versus a board of director who is responsible for the business side of the organization. And if we have enough volunteers to pull from, hopefully we should be able to look at separating those roles in the future, which goes back to benefiting the membership. Okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is weird, right? That as a member, you, you only get to have input on on the board once every four years. Um, and, you know, because as, as a, as a resident of a single area, you only get to vote for, for one of the directors. Whereas, you know, obviously there are some, some boards that have at large directors. So, you know, you, you could definitely see it is, it is kind of strange that, that we couple sort of the geography in a way that, you know, it, it sort of resembles the the Congress, right? It's like, oh, I'm the senator from North Carolina. I'm supposed to represent North Carolina's interest, but we don't expect the the area four director to necessarily, you know, lobby aggressively for things that would solely benefit area four. They're just area four. Their area four is representative on the board. So, yeah, I, I think um, I think it's certainly an interesting discussion to have. But uh, add it to yeah. the list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm with you. And it doesn't need to be near the top. It was yeah, just something these, I had come up with. These are processes that are going to take a very long time. And I, I, that's the biggest thing that we all want. We all want immediate change. We, we want these you know, fast changes. And unfortunately, what I found is in nonprofits, that just doesn't happen. No matter, no matter how hard you work to make things happen quickly, it, it just doesn't work that way. There's, there's institutional inertia against it. Um, getting people on board with ideas and then proving those ideas takes time. And... It's, it's just going to take time. And unfortunately, there, there isn't a better answer than that. But we need to begin making steps in the right way so that in you know, 15, 20 years, this organization is not only still here, but much more prosperous than it already is. Yeah, I, th I think, uh, the, well, the reason I ask that is, you know, everything is broken down in time. You know, where do we need to be a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? So, and trying to project where we need to be, you know, these are things that, that can be discussed and then dealt with as we get there. So either one of you, do you have any, all right, this should be Kyle. Do you have any relationships that, uh, sponsorships, relationships, anything like that, which might affect your ability to to vote on something in an unbiased manner as a board member? Not at all. I've talked about this a couple times, uh, once in a live stream on my individual page, and I've, I've posted it several times, uh, basically to include everything. Uh, there was a period of time where I was sponsored by Axiom Custom Guns. I received a discounted gun and $250 per each individual competitor that I sent to the business. Um, and then I've also received two pairs of glasses from Hunter's HD Gold. But that one's kind of unique in the fact that I'd, I'd consider Brian a friend of mine and I've given him probably way more value in 
uh, stone crab claws over the years than the glasses. So I don't think necessarily that's a, a, a bribe as much as a, hey, thanks for the stone crab claws. Um, but I, you know, if, if there's something somebody wants me to fill out, great, I don't care. Uh, but those are the only two that I've received my entire time. I have no aspirations of making money in this organization. Uh, I do it because I love it, period. Ben. Yeah, so I, for uh, the last year or two, I've been on the Blue Bullet shooting team. I wear a jersey for them. I get a, a discount off any product I buy from them. I don't get anything for free, but I do have that relationship. They happen to be local. Their factory is only, I think, a little over an hour from here. So, you know, when they asked me to, to sort of represent them, I figured you know, it doesn't cost me anything to give them a little free publicity and, and they've always made a good product. So that's my only sort of sponsorship commercial relationship. And yeah, if there were a situation where we were voting on anything commercial related to sponsors, you know, I know they sponsor a lot of matches, uh, obviously I'd, I'd recuse myself, but yeah, that's the only, the only conflict of interest that I would have. Okay. Now, gentlemen, we're at the end, we're at the closing. So Ben, why don't you let us know, you know, why you ran for area six, or why you're running for area six and what the benefits are to the members of voting you into office. So I, I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. I've just been shooting the, I've been in the sport for about 10 years. I've seen directors come and go. And as time has gone on, I've sort of seen decisions at the board level be made that, that I didn't agree with. And I wanted to, to be able to be an advocate for a point of view that I didn't see being advocated for on the board. And so when the, when the election came around, I looked back at sort of the last few years where in since 2017, 2018, especially when things started going sideways with uh, changing production and, and really mutating this division that I've been invested in for a long time in a way to, to satisfy people who were not sort of the core production shooter, but to try and make it appealing to people who hypothetically might be interested in it in the name of you know, inclusivity and seeing this, this, this trend of not feeling like my views were, were represented on the board and talking to people that, that felt the same way. I thought when the opportunity came up, I would put my name in the, the actual incident that pushed me over. I'd been considering this for a while, knowing that the, the election cycle is a long one and that you know, it only comes up every four years and you have to have your paperwork in by a certain date and all that. But really the thing that pushed me over the, over the edge was in, uh, when a, a year ago in August, when the board voted to ban people not for anything they'd done on the range, but purely for speech on the internet. And to me, those are completely baseless. Unless there is some information that the board has not disclosed, every single one of those people, uh, Derek and Ben and Brett and Joe, should be reinstated. I think Joe's suspension was only for a year, so it may be up soon. Um, people people should not be banned from the sport for, for speech on the internet unless it is somehow criminal or threatening. And, uh, and I mean, actually legally actionable. I'm not just talking about, you know, <laughs> traditional blustery, uh, internet talk point being that was, that was the incident where I saw, okay, this board feels accountable to no one. They feel like they can just ban their critics and keep making changes and ramming things down the membership's throat. And at least if I put my name in and run, people will have a choice to vote for me. I have a long back catalog of, of podcasts. I've been around for a while. My thoughts, the way that I analyze issues, 
is out there. I'm available if people want to email me. I've, I've always, you know, at the end of every episode of the podcast, I, I put my email right there. If you want to reach out, I, I'm happy to have a conversation. If you want to ask me my thoughts on something, I've always been an open book. And so I thought I would just put my name on the ballot, give people a chance to have an option if they saw things in the way that I see things to, to be someone who could advocate for that point of view on the board for those people who, who currently don't feel heard. So I, I have no particular desire to spend long hours in board meetings and, uh, you know, give up a, a significant portion of time that I could be spending dry firing or, you know, with my, with my two year old and my eight week old. Uh, but when the timing lined up to run for the board, I figured I'd, I'd put my name in. And if the membership thought that I would be a good choice to represent them, do my best for, for as long as they are willing to vote for me. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Oh, Kyle. I feel like I've heard you say that before, Ben, but I, I never really heard you put it exactly like that. So you're saying that you you decided to run because you're angry at what happened? That was that was the thing that tipped me over. I mean, it's been a, a series of, of what I see as bad decisions by the board going back to at least 2017. But that was the, the sort of precipitating event where I knew the deadline was coming up. And so that's when I that, that was sort of the thing where I said, these people are completely unchecked. I'm at least going to try and put my name in and, and see who else puts their name in and, and runs. OK. Fair enough. Uh, why am I running? Um, the, the easiest way to, to put it is that this, this organization has had a huge impact on my life um, from basically my first match up until now. Uh, I have been volunteering my time. I have been doing everything I can to get better at doing exactly that. Uh, everything from being an RO all the way up to match directing and range mastering at nationals. Uh, I've tried to dedicate as much time as I have possible to making the sport better. At the end of the day, that's what matters. And I think that my skill sets directly align with that. I have uh, obviously my, my analytical approach from my poker days. I have a fair amount of business experience from after I retired from poker. Um, I am a grandmaster level shooter, um, small business investor, uh, range master. I, I don't think that there is anybody as well-rounded as I am. And I think that my skill sets would probably be one of the best, if not the best on the board for accomplishing what we want to, to make the sport better. Okay. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. And I appreciate both of you running for Area 6. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. I wish you guys both the best. Audience, thank you very much. Um, Captain Jackson, I, I tend to agree. Uh, but it'll be out there for people to see. So hopefully people will listen to what these two have to say and, and make up their mind. All right, gentlemen, I wish you nothing but the best. All right. Thanks, Dave.